guys this morning. Uh, I just needed to go ahead and tell you that I am not Chris Wall, even though he tells me all the time I want to be him, I want to be like him, uh, but I'm not. I'm Brad Ayler. I'm the group's pastor here, and I get the privilege of preaching today. Uh, Chris is at our Calvary campus, uh, preaching on the same topic uh, with our people there at our second campus, and so we're glad to have you here today. Uh, we are talking about the topic of marriage, um, but the deal is here, uh, we have been talking about this for three weeks going into an eight-week series, but it's really for everybody. Uh, if you're a married couple, great. If you're single, if you're widowed, or if you're uh, just wanting and hoping to maybe be married one day, whatever the case may be, this is really a message and a message series for everyone. And so as we talk today, even the points uh, seem to have a lot of uh, things that apply to all relationships, not just the marital relationship. And so we're glad you're here to, to hear about this. If you remember back from last week, uh, we talked about divorce and the biblical view of divorce. And um, it was a tough message but one that we uh, feel like you know, God speaks to, and so we addressed it in this series. Uh, but if you remember uh, back, the, the biggest part of all of that was divorce was not the plan of God from the beginning. He designed marriage in a different way, and sin has entered into the world, and our selfishness has caused us to harden our hearts. And therefore, Moses allowed the people to get divorced. And so it wasn't the the plan uh, or the design of God from the beginning. And so today we're going to unpack really his design for marriage uh, and to talk through that. Now there's a lot of different ideas on what marriage is and what it isn't. Uh, I love hearing um, the different perspectives, but before we get into that, let me read our verse today. And if you'll just stand with me as we do this, we're going to look at Mark chapter, nine, or chapter 10, uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 6. Through nine. Now, we've been going back and forth for different passages, Mark 10 and then also Matthew 19 and looking at both of these passages. But let's just read Mark 10, chapter, chapter 10, verse 6. It says, But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together... Let no one separate. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. You may have a seat. Now, again, like I said, there's a lot of different views on marriage. I like to, to hear uh, it explained by children. Let me give you just a couple of quotes here. Erin, uh, age six, says this about marriage. She says, marriage is when you get to keep the girl and you don't have to give her back to her parents. So that's pretty fun. Um, how to keep a marriage together. Robert, age eight, says this. One of you should know how to write a check, because even if you have tons of love, there's still going to be a lot of bills to pay. So very, very wise at age eight, right? Uh, how would the world be different if people didn't get married? Well, Ava, age seven, says this, you can be sure of one thing, the boys would still chase after us like they do now. And that's absolutely right. The boys would still chase after us. Even um, one of my favorite shows, I don't admit that very often, but even Kramer from Seinfeld has a great view on marriage, or actually not a great view, but we're, let's check it out. Hey. Well, I had a very interesting lunch with George Costanza today. Really? We were talking about our lives, uh -huh. and we both kind of realized we're kids. We're not men. So then you asked yourselves, isn't there something more? 
to life. Yes, we did. Uh, yeah, well, let me clue you in on something. There isn't. <laughs> there isn't? Absolutely not. I mean, what are you thinking about, Jerry? Marriage? Family? Well, they're yeah. prisons. <laughs> Man-made prisons. You're doing time. You get up in the morning, she's there. You go to sleep at night, she's there. It's like you gotta ask permission to, to, to use the bathroom. Is it all right if I use the bathroom? <laughs> yeah, and you can forget about watching TV while you're eating. I can? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know what? Because it's dinner time. And you know what you do at dinner? What? You talk about your day. <laughs> How was your day today? Did you have a good day today or a bad day today? Well, what kind of day was it? Well, I don't know. How about you? How was your day? <laughs> Look, it's sad, Jerry. It's a sad state of affairs. I'm glad we had this talk. Oh, you have no idea. <laughs> That's funny as that is, because it's just funny to look at Kramer, right? Um, it's, it's, it's sad that we do have a negative view of what marriage is supposed to be like. Because it, God designed it. God created it. And there's a purpose behind it. And uh, most of the time, it's bigger and better than we could ever imagine. So the reality is, there's never really been a generation in and all throughout history that has had the right view or as great of a view of marriage as what God designed. The biblical view or God's design and man's design of what marriage is supposed to be about has always been huge, the distance between the two. Some cultures, um, they respect the idea of permanence and, and uh, really just the love of one another a little bit more than we do. Uh, but in, especially in today's culture, in today in America, where we have this idea of, you know, just take it or leave it kind of attitude. The design that we see for marriage is completely um, different than what God's original design was. You know, this was the case in Jesus' day as well. We looked at Matthew chapter 19 uh, on marriage and divorce. And, and in verse 10, it talks about when, when, um, when Jesus kind of laid out the plan when he was quoting Moses back in Genesis about the design for marriage... Uh, the disciples were even blown away. Listen to what they said in chapter 10, in 19, verse 10. They said, the disciples said to him, if this is the relationship of man and his wife, is, if this is the design, it is better not to marry. So even them, even the disciples who were following after Jesus, had an, a, hard, a hard time grasping that marriage in this design, the way God had it, would be anything but good. And so... Um, if that was the case back then, how much more does it seem crazy in our culture where our self is the idol and what will make us happy is ultimate? So let's look at a couple views of marriage. And, and one we've talked about, or both of them we've, we've briefly talked about through our time together. But uh, in your notes there, it says, really, the first one we'll talk about is this consumeristic view of marriage, this consumeristic view of marriage. We live in a day and age where the, uh, the rights of the individual are supreme. That whatever makes me happy, whatever brings me fulfillment, that's, that's ultimate. That's top. That's, that's what I go after. That's what's most important. Ultimate freedom and happiness can only be found in my fulfillment and my happiness and what I want. And so marriages just become... This idea of romantic fulfillment. What can make me happy? Romantically, 
whatever the case may be. But there's no room for duty and promises in this kind of environment. Um, so self is at the heart. Self is at the heart of this view. So let me ask you this. You put a husband who thinks he and his needs and his rights and are supreme, and you put a wife who thinks her needs and her wants and her desires are supreme, and you put those two in the same house together, what do you think is going to happen? War, right? <laughs> Typically, that's, that's war. When you put two supreme individuals together, at the very least, it's going to be difficulty. It's going to be hard. It's going to be tough because you see each other, you see yourself as most important. Your needs, your desires are supreme. This view of marriage has this theme. You adjust to me or I'm out. You adjust to me or I'm out. You give me my, my desires, my wants, or I'm out. Again, it's driven by feelings and passions. Whatever makes me happy, whatever makes me feel good, this is that view of marriage. It has no room, like I said before, for duty or promises, to work hard, to stay true to your promise to one another. If you've ever heard of somebody say, I've fallen out of love, that's this view of marriage. That's this view of marriage. Seeing love as only a feeling and emotion with no thought of being more than that. That's a consumeristic view of marriage. The truth is God who created everything created marriage and has a design and a specific purpose for it. And as we've said over the last three weeks, this view of marriage is called a covenant view of marriage. So let's, look at, let's unpack that just for a second. In a covenant marriage, God is supreme, not the individual. So God is supreme, not the individual. When you enter into a marriage where God is supreme, you lay a healthy foundation to build upon, to work out things in your life, and, and to please Him with how you treat one another and how you love one another. It allows for a life where duty and passion can also um, be present with promise and fulfillment. Um, our passion led us to make a wedding promise. And so throughout that day, as you, um, as you work out that promise over the years and you work through the ups and downs, the highs and lows, that brings the greatest fulfillment. And so there's duty and passion, but there's also happiness and fulfillment based on that view of marriage. So in every wedding, um, I've done several weddings, and in every wedding, there's a moment where you do the vows, right? And these vows are very covenantial, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. You've said it, I've said it, whether those words or another type of words where you've committed and you've covenanted with one another that those promises. What would it be like if at that wedding time that they've just told me, hey, Brad, we're going to do our own vows, and those vows became consumeristic. Like we would get to that point and they promise each other, I will love you if you provide for me $60,000 a year and a great house and two cars and a nice dog and all that stuff. So 
you have to provide this for me or I'm out. What if he said, hey, I'm, I'm in, I love you, I love you all, but you have to look this way like you do right now for the rest of our time together. Well, you would think you would be sitting there in the audience going, okay, I'm out, I'm going to walk out because this is not going to go well. If you're putting conditions on this, like, hey, if you do this, I'll love you, but if not, I'm out, that's, that, that's not going to work. Um, why would anybody uh, go into that? Think about this. You said out loud at your wedding, this could go really bad. You said it. I said it. We said it. For better or for worse. And so in that moment, we said, we promised each other, yeah, this could go really, really bad. But I'm still not going anywhere. I'm here forever. That's covenantial. That's, that's where God's design is, that covenantial type of love. And when we struggle with this, because we will, we're both sinful people. We're going to struggle through this whole idea of a covenant. I'm going to be there for you. I'm going to love you no matter what. But when we do, the theme for this marriage and this view of marriage is we adjust to God together. Not you adjust to me and my ideas and my thoughts and my desires. But we understand that God is supreme. God has a plan for us that's better and bigger than just our happiness. And so when we fail to see that and we start playing this idea of you do this and I do this or whatever, when we see that, we adjust to God together. We say, yeah, you're right. God has a better and a bigger plan for this. And so we're going to together adjust to him. We're not going to fight for us and our individual wants. We're going to fight for what God desires in our lives together. I love this quote from John Piper who said this, God gets glory when two very different and very imperfect people forge a life of faithfulness in the furnace of affliction by relying on Christ. So we don't do that by ourselves. We don't say, hey, we're going to go into this covenantal marriage by ourselves. We have to have the power and the help of Christ. So we rely on him. And ultimately, marriage as a covenant is for God's glory. This is where we're going to unpack a little bit more today. Ultimately, marriage as a covenant is about God's glory. Marriage was not just designed by God. It belongs to him. He has the rights on the design and the purpose and, and everything about it. The goals of marriage Yes, marriage is for our good, but it's first and foremost about God's glory. And we have to get that today. Yes, God wants marriage to be for our good, but it's first and foremost for his glory, to bring him glory. And we have to see that. At the end of his teaching on marriage in in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul um, refers to this passage that we read today, again, quoted from Genesis And then he adds another thought to this. This is what he says. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. This was a mystery to the people of Moses' day. They didn't understand that because they didn't understand what was coming, Christ on the cross. But, But Paul, in the New Testament era, had it revealed to him And so he's been now teaching 
this idea of marriage, but now he references the true meaning. He goes back and says, this is what Moses quoted, and for so many years it's been a mystery, but the mystery is now revealed. And so he takes all of chapter 5, um, 20 and, and on to kind of talk through how that is a picture of Christ in the church, the church being us. So in other words, marriage and its design is to put a covenant relationship of Christ and the church on display for a lost world. For Christ and the church, that's him, that's Jesus and us and what he did as the bridegroom coming for his bride, sacrificing his life, giving his all no matter what, even when we didn't desire it. Romans 5.8 says Christ died for us when we were yet sinners. We hated Christ. We didn't want him. We don't pursue him. And yet Christ gave his life for us. That's the image. That's what we display and that's what we put on display as our marriage reflects Christ in the church. Every marriage, every marriage was intended to do this. Whether you're a believer in Christ or not. Whether you understood that when you started or not. I remember Kelly and I, when we had uh, marriage uh, uh, counseling, premarital counseling, it was a friend of mine, um, one of our pastors where I grew up, and so he was able to kind of just speak to us a little bit, but really didn't prepare us. I was a pastor's kid growing up, and so he kind of had this bent towards, hey, you probably know this already. We didn't. Didn't have a clue, right? And so we're going through premarital counseling. And so here's the deal, though. If, if I knew this going in, would we still say I do? Probably, probably. Would we be a little less confident? Absolutely. This is weight. This is weighty. For us to understand that the, the, the meaning of marriage is to put Christ's relationship to us on display for a lost and dying world. That's the kind of love that God has for us till death do us part as both as long as we both shall live, the kind of love that Jesus made to us when he died for us. One of the reasons God designed marriage this way is so that we could understand and, ex- and experience God's love for us in a tangible way. Most of us have never seen God face to face. Most of us have never heard his audible voice. We can worship God. We can sing to God. We actually just did. We gave him praise through, through song. We can read the Bible. We can understand who he is by the word coming alive to us. We can do all of those things. Kelly can do all those things. But God has put me as her husband in her life to for her to experience God's love in a tangible way, in a real flesh, flesh way, to where we now love each other the way he loves us when we encourage one another, when we support one another, when I lay my life down for her, which means my desires and my wants and my ideas come second. When I do that for her, that is showing the tangible love of Christ to her. That's why God designed it at this, part of this way. 
That's why divorce breaks the heart of God. It misrepresents Christ's unconditional love for us. This covenant marriage between him and his bride, him and us, till death do us part, I'm not going anywhere. Even when you mess up, even when you don't deserve my love, I'm still going to give it to you. That's the covenantial love that he wants our marriages to display. And so that's why divorce breaks his heart. Because it misrepresents what we're trying to communicate to a lost and dying world who doesn't know him and doesn't know anything about his love. What I want to do now is just kind of take us through a few practical ways we can play this out in our marriage. Practically express to one another um, how much... Uh, well, this covenantial type of love to each other. Now, if you're single here in this room, maybe a few of these will actually play out in any kind of relationship that, that you have. A friendship, in your dating life, whatever the case may be. And so let's look at a few of these. Number one, how do you practically live out a covenant marriage? Number one, see your spouse as the only man or woman in the world. Here you're going, Brad... What are you talking about? That's impossible. Okay. Well, I was on staff in Houston, and um, I was able to rub shoulders with a guy named Gary Thomas. And Gary Thomas has written about this concept in a book. But he shared this concept with us before he wrote about it. And he said, you, if you're going to really experience true intimacy and oneness in your marriage, you really need to see your wife or your husband as the only man or woman in the world. You need to go back to the Garden of Eden. Go back to the garden when you see Adam, who has been in charge of naming all the animals, right? As he comes around, he sees all the name animals. He sees that he's really looking. I think Chris mentioned this a couple weeks ago. He's looking for somebody like him, doesn't see it, doesn't see her, right? Doesn't understand, hey, there's nobody like me. God says he's alone. That's not good. I'm going to make him a helper. I'm going to make him a mate. And so he brings Adam, Eve. And what makes this so really cool is that there was no Sarah. There was no Emily. There was no Karen. There was just Eve, right? And so he couldn't imagine any other woman because there wasn't one. She was the only one in the world. He couldn't compare Eve's legs with somebody else's. He couldn't say, oh, I wish Eve was smarter than Julie. Oh, I wish she, was, she, she did this better than this girl over here. Because there wasn't one. She was the only one. He couldn't wonder what it would be like if she was taller, slimmer, darker, funnier. She was the only one, and Adam couldn't be happier if you want to be fully satisfied in your marriage, we have to treat our wives, husbands, we have to treat our wives like they are the only woman in the world, or at least in our minds. We understand, and I understand physically and, and practically that's not true. There's a lot of women in this room. But in our minds, we need to say, you're the only one for me. Let's pray a prayer like this. Let my wife define beauty to me let her be the standard that I find most attractive. 
Do you think if you were to pray that prayer, guys, that God would not answer that? Let me think about that. No, I don't, I don't want to answer that prayer. No, absolutely he would. Let my wife define the beauty. Let my wife define the standard that I find most attractive in life. No marital happiness has ever been achieved when you compare your wife's weakness with somebody else's strengths. Did you get that? You're never going to find happiness in your marriage if you're comparing your wife's weakness to somebody else's strengths. You'll just create discontent and frustration. The same was true for Eve. Eve saw Adam as the only man in the world. Uh, statistics show that women tend to be most, more dissatisfied, more discouraged in the marriages than men. To fight against this, you have to pour your energy into really seeing your husband as the only man in the world with no compare. Eve couldn't say, look, you know, I, I, I think his arms are a little bit below average, but at least he's not bald, right? She, she couldn't say that. You know, well, he's really, really good with animals, but he's not a good handyman. So he, she couldn't say that because Adam was Adam. Adam was hers. And she was satisfied. Men can't be everything. Wives, men can't be everything. But we'll try. We'll certainly try. And if you enough times try to make us into somebody else, we'll try until we can't do it anymore. And then we'll fail and then we'll be frustrated. And we'll understand that we can't compete with what is in your mind as the perfect husband. And then frustration and discontent will continue to happen. It might not be easy, but the best thing you can do for your husband is to assure him that he doesn't have to be anybody else but who he is. It doesn't make you any happier in your marriage to, to compare him with somebody else, to compare his weaknesses with somebody else's strength. It doesn't bring you closer to him. It doesn't help him to become all that you want him to be. At some point, you and I are going to have to be satisfied in our marriage. We're going to have to own the choice that we have made and to begin to treasure it. It starts with a prayer. Then it's, hey, God, help me to see my husband and wife in this way. It, um, it, com it, it continues with a commitment, not just a prayer, but, hey, God, answer this prayer. And okay, now I'm going to go live it out. I'm going to treat them the way that I'm supposed to that they're the only one for me, and then recommit when you fail. It's a constant thing. Number two, uh, ways that you can look at a, or live out a covenantial type uh, relationship. Get out of the debt-debtor relationship. Get out of the debt-debtor relationship. We all intermarriage with uh, desires, right? I I know Kelly and I, we came into our marriage, I, I, I desired this, I wanted this, I wanted this out of our, our relationship, out of our future, desires. Desires are great. Desires turn bad when they become expectations. When she said, hey, I desire to have a house, I desire to be secure, I desire to be financially okay. When that becomes an expectation on me, that's when it becomes frustrating. I desire, hey, clean house. I desire, you know, funds. I desire when that becomes an expectation, that's a problem. Um, in, this, in this type of relationship, there's really 
no room to express gratitude or unconditional love because the, the idea is you owe me this. When my desire now becomes an expectation, then I go up to Kelly and I say, you owe me this. Remember? No, no, no. That was a desire. Now it's an expectation. Okay, so now my view of what I entered into is wrong. And so if you, if we're living out this, get this, if, if, if she provides something that I'm now expecting, how much credit does she get? Do you think I'm going to do a lot of thank yous or gratitude, expression of gratitude? No, because that's, she did what I expected her to do. And vice versa, she expected to do what I did. And so we're passing through the night. We didn't even say thank you because that's the expectation now. It's not a desire. And so there's less room for expression of gratitude and unconditional love. As long as we live like this, we begin to view marriage as a contract. If you do that, I'll love you. If you love me, I'll love you. That's a contract, not a covenant. The only time you're going to hear from me is when you mess up. It's like our mortgage payments. How many of you have ever gotten a phone call saying thank you from your mortgage company? You don't do that, right? But if you miss a payment, maybe two, you're going to get a personal phone call by some high up in the company, right? Hey, I wanted to tell you that you're late on your payments. And so if you're living this kind of debt-debtor relationship, that's going to happen in your marriage. Where you're going to be fine as long as you're living up to each other's expectation. But once you fail, once you mess up, you're going to get a talking to the longer you live this way and the you owe me, the harder it is to experience romance, creativity, and unconditional love. A couple ways you can uh, think about if, if you're living in this, in this world is how um, you express your gratitude. Are you grateful for your spouse? Are you grateful for what he or she does? If you're not expressing that to him or her, you might have slipped into this debt-debtor relationship where now you're expecting things, check your, your heart, check your, check your expressions of gratitude. Your acts of service, if you walk by something and you go, I'm not going to do that because that's her job or that's his job. Acts of service, doing things that you feel like, man, could serve him or her, you don't do those anymore because that's, that's just their job. Acts of service, check those out to see if you've moved into this contract mode, this debt debtor relationship. And then three, uh, treat your spouse better than yourself. Treat your spouse better than yourself. Philippians 2, Paul says that we, if we have any encouragement for how Christ has loved us, let's love the way Christ loves us. And so he lays this out in Philippians 2, 3, and 2, 4. He says, do nothing out of vain conceit, but in rather in humility, value yourself, value others above yourself. Act like they're more important than you. Treat them like they have value. Think of the most uh, valuable thing that you own outside of relationships. For me, it was my mom. My mom um, uh, had a baby tr a trophy that I won as a baby. I was in a baby pageant. She won, I won. So that was her valuable trophy. Just kidding. Now, for me, it's, it's <laughs> what? You don't think I won a baby pageant? Look at this, right? No, um, we value things. For me, it's this. It, it, it's a Bible. I know that sounds spiritual, but I, I've rebounded a Bible that I had growing up. 
And if you'll actually look at this, it's all torn up, written up. I even say that if I ever lost this, I'd lose my salvation. <laughs> it's, it's how much I treasure it, okay? So if you ever take this away from me, Paige Cole, Paige in here, he'd do something like that. But, and hide it, I'd freak out. So, but think of the things you value the most. How do you treat them? You know where they are all the time. You, you, you care about how other people treat them. You value them. And so that's how we're supposed to do, Paul says, for our wives and for other people in our lives. That's just friendships and anybody. He also says, don't look to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. To, um, I know naturally it's hard to be interested in things that you're not interested in. Kelly and I are on the different pages when it comes to uh, different things that we're, we're interested in. I love history. She absolutely hates it. She loves science. She's a nurse. I absolutely hate science. And so we had to kind of play that out. It's been really good because now when our kids have either one of those, uh, that homework and stuff, we know, they know where to go. And they know where they're going to get the help. But uh, I remember doing this with her father. Uh, when I was trying to, to, when I was dating her, I was trying to get his approval. Um, we went out fishing one day. I hate to fish. Um, I'm not good at it. And so I love those closed reels, you know, uh, whatever they're called. I don't even know the terms, but it's a closed reel. I can throw it out and not even worry about it. Well, he had these open reels, and that did not go well for me. And so I first time we're in two different canoes. We're out on this lake, and we're, we're doing things, and he's fishing over there. I'm fishing over here. My first cast was my only cast for like three hours because it just all came apart, and it's all in the boat. And I shove it down. Like, yeah, I'm doing good. I'm doing and, and he knew exactly what I was doing. I was trying to make, up, make him think that I loved to fish. But he took me fishing, and I had to impress him to get his girl. And so I did that. But, but, so don't just take interest in your wife or your husband. Don't just put up with them. Take interest in them. If I were to ask you what your husband did or what your wife does, would you be able to tell me? Specifically, what do, what do they do all day? They come home, you, how's your day? Great, okay, good. Do you know what they do? do? Do you take interest in them? Do you value them above yourself? Do you take interest in who they are? The more you invest in your husband and your wife, the less self-centeredness, selfishness will be evident in your relationship. Number four, we close with this. Understand what God has done for you and offer the same to your spouse. Understand what God has done for you and offer the same to your spouse. Our ability to keep loving an imperfect and sometimes ungrateful spouse is dependent on understanding three basic truths. How much you've been forgiven what we've been saved from, and the cost that Christ paid for that salvation. This is what we call the gospel message. And it's the most practical help you'll ever get in your marriage relationship. The gospel is not some historical truth. It's something that you and I have to breathe in and out every day of our lives, individually and as a couple. If we get how sinful we are, what we deserve, what Christ has saved us from, 
an eternity, not just in hell, which is already bad enough. But I think the worst part of that than, than this idea of burning in hell forever, I think the worst part of that, of that is God is not there. That is what you're saved from. You deserve that. I deserve that. And when we understand how sinful we are and what we deserve and then what Christ did and the agony he experienced on the cross for us so that we wouldn't have to experience that, when we understand that, really, we'll be able to love our spouse differently the way God designed. If we don't understand this, no clue, no way can you look at your husband and your wife and understand what God's called you to do because of our sin, because of our selfishness, because of our desire to put ourselves as ultimate and supreme. When we receive the grace that God's given us, we want to go and bend it out to our spouse and give it to them. If we don't receive it, we're not going to give it, and you can go round and round and probably end up in a very dark place in your marriage. How do you get to 50 years? How do you get to 70 years of living with somebody who is sinful and stumbles a lot? You understand what's, how much you have sinned, how much you have stumbled, and how God has loved you despite it and loved you no matter what, even when you didn't deserve it. That's what he's called us to do for our spouse. So how do you view marriage? Through a covenant or through consumerism, putting yourself first? We're not going to get this right 100% of the time. Great marriages have a foundation in covenant with a little bit of consumeristic kind of mixed in with it. You know, um, Kelly and I will argue about who gets their needs met. Most of the time it's me fighting that. And most of the time it's 80, well, 80% of the time it's my fault that we've started this because I'm selfish. But if we'll have that fight or every once in a while, that, that's okay. We can work that out. But if you have that fight three or four times a week, you're living in a consumeristic marriage, that God is not honored, and then really you're not living out the design. That's why it's frustrating, because you're not living out the design. So here's what I want to ask us to do today. And this might be uncomfortable for some, but I, I feel like we're talking about marriage for three or four weeks now, and I, and I feel like we need to do something as couples. So if you're single, or if you're widowed, or if you're not married today, I want you to just kind of hang in there with us. But as we close and as we go into an invitation, I would love for us to take some time as couples to evaluate where we are, covenant, consumeristic. And maybe confess, talk about, and pray together about moving forward today, operating in God's design. Not necessarily looking back, but looking forward, saying, I understand now what God has done for me and what I need to do for you. So would you bow your heads with me as we close? And as uh, we have an invitation in just a few minutes, 
I'd like to see, if, if you're married and your spouse is here and you feel comfortable, I would like to call you to the altar. We could, cl- we could just line this whole area up here, even if you can't get to the stairs, and just come and pray. And maybe you've never prayed with your spouse before. Okay, that's fine. Just come and kind of talk through this. Do I see you as somebody that's there to serve me? Or do I see you as somebody that I want to serve because of what Christ has done for me? And talk about that. Maybe you want to pray together and say, you know what? I need to ask you to forgive me. I see you as somebody to consume rather than to serve. And let's, let's go forward today. Let's leave here with the idea that God wants so much more for our relationships than maybe what we're giving him today. So as we, would you stand with me? And as we sing through a a song or two, if you're married today, come on down if you feel comfortable. If not, you may want to stay right there together in your seat. You may want to kneel right there. You may want to come down. But let's, let's do some work today on seeing our marriages and our relationship the, God, the way God designed. Pray over one another.